Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there, and welcome to Loving Liberty. Okay, so I, I hate to do this to you because it's like jumping right into the middle of uh, Act 2 of a three-act play, but uh, I was sharing last hour an article by Jim Quinn from theburningplatform.com, and this is an article about fourth-turning economics. It's a fairly in-depth article, and and I hope you had a chance to listen to the, the first hour of the program today. If not, it would provide some good context. But in a nutshell, he's talking about how there there has always been a very strong economic component that leads up to the fourth turning crisis, which is a, a, a historical cycle that has played out at least three times previously in American history and is playing out even now as I speak. The turnings, in, in a nutshell, can be likened to the seasons of the year. There's a, there's a time where it's spring-like, everything is new and very promising. There's summer where things are good, but people start to get comfortable, and maybe a small amount of discontent starts to, to creep in, and then fall comes, and there's an unraveling that takes place. And as that unraveling progresses, attitudes shift, societies start to place emphasis on different things, and eventually something happens which constitutes a crisis. And that initiates the fourth turning, which leads us into winter. And uh, not to sound like a downer, man, that's where we are today. Now, in helping to show how this, this plays out, Jim Quinn goes into some interesting details about how uh, the the economic uh, crisis that, for instance, uh, set off the American Revolution, which, by the way, was a fourth turning. That came about because of economic pressure from Great Britain. Yes, taxation without representation was a part of it, but there were a number of different acts which in which the British government tried to clamp down and assert absolute control over the colonies. And economic warfare eventually devolved into a shooting war that led to the existing social and political order being swept away. Next, he talks about what we call the Civil War. I prefer to call it the War Between the States or Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. Yeah, I do have a small slant there. But while we've been trained to see that war as primarily being, well, it was about slavery, that was just a part of the reasons why the South was willing to secede from the Union. And the economic component was a massive part of it. Slavery, by the way, did play a role in that economic component, but it wasn't the sum total of it. And this is important. And so here you had the, the South with the election of Lincoln and the Republicans in 1860 saying, you know what? They'd be willing to risk war to break away from the Union rather than be subject to the economic policies of Lincoln and the Republicans. By the way, if you look at uh, how divided the country was then compared to how divided it is now, we may have a very interesting election on our hands next year. The next fourth turning was from 1929 to 1946. 
And it's so interesting how the Great Depression, which which you know kicked off with the stock market collapse of 1929, but he, he talked about uh, Jim Quinn points out how there were assurances all along that no everything is great everything is going just fine and and he has a quote here from herbert hoover who was president in 1930 and hoover was saying well while the crash only took place six months ago i am convinced we have now passed through the worst and with continued unity of effort we shall rapidly recover there's been no significant bank or industrial failure that danger too is safely behind us and then three years later, a new president closed all the banks and confiscated gold from the American citizens. You want to hear a quote that will send a little chill up your spine? Here's what President Roosevelt said in 1933. All safe deposit boxes in banks or financial institutions have been sealed and may only be opened in the presence of an agent of the Internal Revenue Service. That's pretty cold. Now, Quinn goes on to point out the causes for World War II are many, but the underlying source for the deaths of 65 million people was economic. The Treaty of Versailles, blaming the Germans solely for the First World War and demanding crippling reparations, was the nexus for World War II. Germany was forced to surrender colonial territories and militarily disarm, creating German resentfulness of the treaty. In 1923, the Weimar Republic delayed reparation payments, leading France and Belgium to occupy the Ruhr Valley, effectively appropriating the coal and metal production that took place there. As much of German manufacturing was dependent on coal and metal, the loss of these industries created a negative economic shock, leading to a severe contraction. And this contraction, as well as the government's continued printing of money to pay internal war debts, generated spiraling hyperinflation. This economic suffering and humiliation ultimately led to the population turning to Adolf Hitler as their savior. The global trade contraction exacerbated the mistrust and anger building throughout the world. Tariffs and counter-tariffs made the Great Depression greater than it had to be. The protectionist policies of countries around the globe denied key raw materials to countries dependent upon imports. While the British, French, Soviets, and Americans had such large colonial empires to turn to for access to much-needed raw materials, countries like Germany, Italy, and Japan did not. The have-not nations found it increasingly necessary to use military force to annex territories with the much-needed resources, and such military force required extensive rearmament, and the case of Germany meant a direct violation of the Versailles Treaty. And this ultimately rewarded in war breaking out in Europe. The American oil embargo on Japan ultimately resulted in the attack on Pearl Harbor and the start of the Pacific War. Interesting. Now, there are more parts to this uh, fourth turning economics. But I would encourage you, go to. Go to the uh, burning platform. And see it for yourself. Because it's, it's very curious to see what's happening today compared to uh, some of the things that set about uh, the, the motion, set in motion, um, you know, the events that we're familiar with. The Revolutionary War. The Civil War. World War II and the Great Depression. 
I'm not going to share with you part two of it today, but I will encourage you to check it out. Maybe I'll share this with you uh, tomorrow. There, there's more to it, but it's, it's a fairly detailed thing, and I have some other stuff I want to get to. If you don't have a copy of The Fourth Turning, it would be a wise thing to get your hands on. It'll take you some time to, to read. I don't think you're going to find it, uh, you know, a, a tremendously difficult read. But it's, it's not, uh, this is not like a Tom Clancy novel. It's not like, well, I'll just sit down and be entertained by it. No, it'll, it'll take a little bit of effort. But if you're like me, once, once you see the cycles of history laid up against events that we're familiar with, the pattern becomes pretty clear. And I think the, the thing I want to emphasize above all is this cycle doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's predestined that it's going to turn out this way. The first time our nation went through a fourth turning, things actually turned out quite well. We gained our independence from Britain. We went through that period of adjustment and under the Articles of Confederation learned to, to work together and ultimately got our Constitution and what uh, may be one of the finest systems of government that mankind could produce. Not perfect, but still unprecedented in terms of the individual liberty that it, uh, that it allowed and encouraged. The next turning from the war between the states ended slavery in one form. Chattel slavery was done, but it also did away with federalism and instituted a national government that essentially made all of us slaves to the degree that our states are now beholden to the federal government as opposed to being able to exercise their own sovereign powers. The next fourth turning, the Great Depression and World War II, it ended well for those who were on the side of the Allies, not so well for anybody on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And of course, the monetary system that, that came out of that the world monetary system is something that uh, I think some people would at the very least say is a mixed blessing at best. But in all three of those instances, things were very different on the other side of that fourth turning crisis than they were going into it. We are in the midst of a fourth turning crisis right now. The biggest thing that will determine whether it's a positive or a negative outcome is going to be the character, the individual character of people like you and me. So if it seems too big, well, how could I possibly have any influence? Don't underestimate the power of a character, of the character of an individual to shape things in ways you hadn't maybe considered. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, let's talk about a couple other things going on here. Um, the, the, the most disturbing thing that I am hearing in the news these days is uh, the the agitation for we need red flag laws. And I think what what's lacking here is uh, is a lack of perspective. And that's why it was kind of surprising to see the other day a, a, a name of someone who, as, as Tom Woods puts it, strayed from the 3 by 5 index card of allowable opinion. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he says, may be the best-known astrophysicist in America. 
Tom Wood says, I'm not much of a fan primarily because he wears his boring political views, all of which I can guess in advance, on his sleeve. But he says, within his own field, Tyson is no doubt very knowledgeable. But when he strays from it, even by an inch, he says, I normally find him doltish. He yearns to be considered profound, but he's actually predictable and trite. Now, he says, I've commented before on Tyson's statement, repeated endlessly by his followers, that the great thing about science is that it's true, whether you believe it or not. And Tom Wood says that's profound until you stop and realize that it applies to literally everything, not just science. For instance, Jim Carrey starred in The Truman Show, whether you believed it or not. (laughs) Profound revelations. Anyway, he does have some praise for Neil deGrasse Tyson because the other day Tyson posted this on Twitter. He posted in the past 48 hours, the U.S. horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 people to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide via handgun. And he says, often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. And Tom Wood says, people went berserk. Now, he says, suppose Tyson had said, in order to gain perspective on the problem of Islamic terrorism, let me compare the number of American deaths it's been responsible for to the number of deaths attributable to a variety of other causes. He says, in that case, everybody would be congratulating him for being a voice of reason in a time of madness. They might also note that legislation passed in the wake of acts of Islamic terrorism would have done nothing to prevent them and thus taken away individual freedom for no good reason. But when Tyson draws these comparisons between shootings and other causes of death, why, he's dangerous and irresponsible, even though the two cases are identical in every relevant sense, including that proposed legislation wouldn't have stopped any of them. So some people on Twitter said, well, they've lost all respect for Tyson. And Tom Wood says, really, one tweet and you lose all respect for someone? All? What the hell is wrong with people? He says, good for Tyson for having an independent thought. <laughs> I have to agree. That's, uh, it's, it's refreshing to see somebody put some perspective out on this. And it's really needed right now. Red flag laws are something that uh, are, are going to be force-fed to us. And, and by the way, Mitt Romney, uh, sorry, just controlling my gag reflex for a moment here. Mitt Romney is now... You know, talking about, well, there's something. We've got to do something. We have to do something. Red flag laws are something that certain politicians and certain power seekers have wanted for a while because they they will prevent people from exercising their natural rights, not based on something they've done, but on something they might do or potentially could do or that we fear they could do. I want you to hear what Judge Andrew Napolitano has to say. I think he's got about the best possible slant on this. This is a recent appearance he had on the Fox News Network. Joining me now, Judge Andrew Napolitano, Fox News senior judicial analyst. Judge, you heard Kellyanne Conway saying that, you know, there's it, it's difficult. It's difficult to keep people from getting guns. In my mind, I look at this kid who was suspended from his school right. for having a kill list and a rape list. Right. Why is it that when he goes to purchase a gun, his school record at his young age isn't relevant to the person who's going to sell it to him? Uh, because school records are not part of the database that the FBI accesses be. and authorities in Ohio Why can't access. they be? 
Well, because laws have prohibited that and have kept it private. That's a great point that Kellyanne Conway makes. You and I live in the state of New Jersey. Yeah. New Jersey has the most difficult and demanding background check of all 50 states. Both of those killers, the one in El Paso and the one in Dayton, would have passed New Jersey's test on the basis of what is allowed to go into that database. So when uh, members of Congress are saying universal background checks, universal background checks, they don't work unless you have the right information in there, because you can only access what's already in the database. All right. So what about, you know, because these are the things that come up. What about mental health, right? So you want to keep the guns out of people's hands who, you know, obviously have a desire to kill innocent people, right. you know, who've written things about that and who have expressed, you know, in, in many cases, people who know them, close to them, they know that these people are dangerous. Right. How do we keep the guns out so of their hands? So the president is in a very, very difficult spot. He is the most uh, pro-Second Amendment president in my memory, maybe even more so than Ronald Reagan. He's made no bones about it. I understood his statement today as one where he's still trying to protect the core right to keep and bear arms, but sort of touching at the edges of it and the fringes of it for people who don't belong there. The problem is that some of the things that he wants to do, and which the Democrats have been calling for for years, and even some uh, Republicans now after the tragedy of last weekend, would profoundly violate first principles and profoundly violate due process. If something can be taken away, if, the, if a right, a natural right, can be taken away on the basis of fear of what someone might do rather than that what someone did, then none of our rights are safe. So I, I think that all these red flag laws are unconstitutional because they are based on a fear that what you think the person might could and may do rather than what they've done. And we don't we don't punish on the basis of fear in America. We punish on punish only on the basis of demonstrable proven facts. So laws need to be changed. Laws need to be changed. Um, Listen, I'm of the belief that where there's more guns, there's less crime. The, the Walmart, which sells handguns, does not permit you to carry a handgun on their premises, even though Texas has an open uh, carry law. I don't think that guy would have gotten to first base with his killing in a state like Texas if the men and women who can carry well, guns I, I mean, had been able to carry yeah, them and there. Thank God in, in Dayton. I mean, it was, it's the most amazing, awful video. But those people are running for their lives, and he is running in the door, and he gets taken out by an amazing Dayton, response. Dayton, by the, showed, by the, Dayton showed me some of the most courageous police work incredible. I've seen in my career. And, they were, and I, they were I, fearless and they, they saved were lives. And, and apparently five of the six officers who took him out have been on the force for less than three years. So they are they are new and they are. All right. Brave. I'm going to stop it there. But you get the gist of what he's talking about. Would you take the bet of we can trust politicians to not abuse this idea of punishing people or or and, and, and I know people sometimes struggle with the idea. How's it punishing them? How's it punishing somebody to, to just prevent them from buying a certain gun or to, to prevent them from possessing a certain gun? If there's a reasonable fear that they might do something. OK, well, define reasonable. Because I know people who have what they would say is a very reasonable fear. I don't want my neighbor to have an M16 in his home. Why? Uh, I have a right to feel safe in my neighborhood. And I've responded to people like that saying, well, how are you even supposed to know what he has in his home? Why is that any of your business? Well, we don't allow people to keep nerve gas in their homes. Or do I have to wait until my neighborhood is nothing but smoking rubble before I can say, well, see, he shouldn't have had that. To which I respond, okay, well, when's the last time your neighborhood was smoking rubble? It doesn't happen. 
So we're dealing with things that are at best figments of our imagination. Yes, there is the possibility that anybody, even a police officer, could twist off and go crazy and shoot people. It can happen. But the only fair way to handle this without opening us up to government abuse is to make sure that due process is strictly observed, that government follows the limits on its powers, and that we don't make shortcuts in the name of feeling safe. Look, if our natural rights can be denied based on what someone imagines could happen, then our only protection from government government abuse is going to be the limits of our politicians' imaginations. And I got a hunch, I got a hunch that many of them have pretty vibrant imaginations, if you get my drift. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. By the way, phones are working now. We've had a chance to uh, to function test them. And if you'd like to join the conversation, 801-331-8113. I, I'm starting to soften my otherwise inflexible stance of how Microsoft may be the, the source of all evil in our nation today. <laughs> I, I'm getting over it. But man, I'll tell you, I was I was hot under the collar yesterday when their uh, when their update pretty much upset my apple cart. All right. I'm doing much better. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Let's see. What else? What else can we move on to? Um, we talked a little bit about fourth turning economics. I'm going to come back to the economic issue here for just a moment outside the context of the fourth turning. Ron Paul from the Ron Paul Institute has an article today on LouRockwell.com about how Congress's spending surge is national suicide. Now, look, it, I, I apologize if I'm if I'm being a downer. I you know, here I am, Debbie Downer, talking about, uh, oh, man, what's happening with the economy. But this is one of those things that's not only easy to ignore because there are other things distracting us, you know, mass shootings, that, that kind of thing. But it's also something that we're being told something very different by our politicians. And, and you know, I don't care what you think about Donald Trump. When he starts talking about this is the greatest economy, the strongest economy that we've had in 50 years or whatever, it is a house of cards. And I'm not trying to denigrate anything that he has done. I'm not trying to to make you feel bad and like you should hang your head in shame as you walk down the street. But we we are being spent into a situation that is going to come back to bite us. And and if not us, then it will also come back to bite our children or our grandchildren. There's something profoundly immoral about that to my thinking. Some people have the attitude, well, you know, kick the can down the road. They'll figure something out. How fair is it to saddle another generation, maybe even unborn generations, with a debt that they had absolutely no say in acquiring? I don't know. To, to me, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with... Uh, Thomas Jefferson, he had a letter in which he described earth is for the living. 
And this is one of the points he made is it's very it's it's profoundly immoral for someone to to go out and recklessly create a debt or an obligation that they put off on people who had absolutely no say in whether or not that uh, that debt should be acquired. And I've heard people try to justify this in a number of different ways. Well, now, Brian, we're all living on the blessings of those who incurred that debt. So if you want to reject those blessings, and that's not the point. Frankly, I think we'd be a lot more blessed had previous generations lived within their means. Let me just give you a small example. A hundred years ago, 1919. What you could buy with $20 in 1919 compared to what you can buy with $20 today. Well, there's just no uh, comparison. I know there's no comparison. It's because we have, we have created a debt-based economy. We've created fiat currency with the Federal Reserve, where it's just, it, we just believe it's money. There's nothing of intrinsic value. But more importantly, we have allowed spending to go on. We've allowed money to be printed up to where it has diluted the purchasing power of every single dollar in the system. There's a form of intergenerational theft taking place here. And I don't think it's wrong to point that out as as bad. Here's what Ron Paul has to say. He says, with the national debt approaching $23 trillion at a trillion-dollar deficit, for this year alone, Congress last week decided to double down on suicidal spending, passing a two-year budget that has the United States careening toward catastrophe. Now, he says, while we cannot say precisely what the, when the economic crash will occur, we do know that it's coming. And last week, Congress pounded down on the accelerator. We're told the U.S. economy is experiencing unprecedented growth, while at the same time the Fed is behaving as it does when we are in recession by cutting rates and dodging insults from the president because it's not cutting fast enough. He says this is not economic policy, it's schizophrenia. But that's only the beginning. Take what they call national defense spending. This is the misnomer they use to try to convince us that pumping trillions into the military-industrial complex will make us safe and free. Nothing could be further from the truth. Probably 90% of the defense budget is aggressive militarism and welfare for the rich. Under this budget deal, the military budget would increase to nearly $1.4 trillion for two years. Now, of course, that's only a fraction of real military spending, which all told is well over $1 trillion per year. What do we get for this money? Are we safer? Not at all. We're actually more vulnerable than ever. We spend billions fighting, quote, terrorism in Africa, while terrorism has actually increased since the creation of the USA, U.S. Africa Command, or AFRICOM, in 2007. Meanwhile, we continue to spend to maintain our illegal military occupation of a large section of Syria, which benefits terrorist groups seeking to overthrow Assad. We're sending thousands more troops to the Middle East, including basing U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia for the first time since 2003. Back then, even neocon Paul Wolfowitz praised our departure from Saudi Arabia because, as he rightly stated, U.S. troops on Saudi soil was a great recruiting tool for al-Qaeda. Just as an aside, quick, quick aside here. It's one of the reasons why Osama bin Laden says he did what he did. 
that was one of the conditions why he was saying it's time to it's time to draw the U.S. into a war and wear them out. Ron Paul says once we pulled out of the intermediate range nuclear forces treaty so that we can deploy once forbidden missiles on China's front door or now we've done that. A new arms race with China will mean a new boon for our new defense secretary's former colleagues at Raytheon. This is one of the other things that had caught my attention. It's not just, yeah, we're in a pretty hot little trade war with China, but now we are putting intermediate range nuclear missiles right there in Asia. And China's just supposed to sit back and say, well, it's not a big deal. It's all good. Right, homie? Ron Paul continues, Senator Rand Paul pronounced the Tea Party dead with the adoption of this budget. And he said he's right, of course, but only when it comes to Congress. Given the opportunity, Ron Paul says, I still believe a good part of the American people will vote for candidates who promise to rein in the national credit card. President Trump himself ran on the platform of ending deficit spending and even paying off the national debt. So the Tea Party may be dead in Washington. But Ron Paul says, I'm not convinced it was ever really alive in Washington. With a few exceptions, most politicians saw the Tea Party as just the flavor of the month. Spending is what keeps Washington alive and keeps the D.C. suburbs rich. They're not about to cut back on their own. But here's the important part. The spending will end. The trillions thrown down the drain on militarism militarism will end. The only question is whether it will end when we are completely bankrupt and at the mercy of the countries we've kicked around for decades, or whether Americans will demand an end to bipartisan addiction to war and spending in Washington. You know what's curious to me? I think there's truth in in everything that Ron Paul has said here. I think he's he's spelling it out as, as, as clearly and succinctly as it can be. But this is the kind of thing that just angers people. And there's no shortage of people who see America's greatness as well. Our greatness is in our ability to flex military muscle anywhere, anytime around the world. And to me, that seems very short-sighted. I understand how people can, can become seduced into thinking that, well, as long as we've got the strongest military, everything is going to be great. That's because in their hearts, they can't see That system, that military-industrial complex, or actually I'll call it the national security complex, being turned inward against them. But I see it. I know quite a few other people who see it as well. And this is the question I'd ask you to consider. For all these far-flung military bases, all this military presence, all this muscle that we are flexing around the world, up to and including, now we're going to put intermediate-range nuclear missiles right there at China's front door. Are we any freer here at home? Or do we continue to see our freedoms diminish? I'm not going to answer it for you. But I would encourage you, whatever you think the answer is, well, of course we're freer. No, actually we're not freer. I would encourage you, why? How? Give examples. But be prepared. There may be some uncomfortable truths that have to be confronted in answering that question. If the military is there to protect our freedom, why is it we are less free every time we send them out to some other far-flung corner of the world? Why is it that our privacy and our freedoms here at home 
seem to be more and more only in existence at the whim of whoever's in power at the moment. All right, I got to cheer myself up. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Hey, quick reminder for you, too. Beth Ann will be joining us coming up. In the, actually, joining us. She'll be doing her show in the 9 o'clock hour. That's 9 o'clock Mountain Time on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. If you want to hear some great common sense talk radio that uh, will help bring America home, Beth Ann has the message that uh, you should hear. I'm going to continue on here for a moment. Uh, I, I, I hate that I'm bringing even more attention to the uh, to the El Paso and Dayton shootings. I know the, the impression is that, my gosh, they're going on everywhere. But I found an article today that listed out three reasons why the media coverage may actually contribute to mass shootings. And it comes down to the amount of coverage, the specificity of coverage and the focus of the coverage. And the author here says, look, I realize the news programs have a duty to report on these atrocities, but this responsibility is, uh, you know, it's a vital part of their duty to keep the public informed and safe. But Amelia Bailey writing about this says it is this end goal that should be kept in mind, influencing the way stories are reported, not sensationalizing the backstory of the perpetrator. Programs should be careful not to turn a villain into a kind of hero simply because he gets all this attention. Instead, facts should be reported, rarely revisited, thus allowing communities and families to move on and heal. Hear, hear. I know I pick on the media somewhat. I've actually been asked, do you have a problem with the legacy media? I do, to the extent that they consider themselves, you know, the arbiters of what we're supposed to think, as opposed to giving us the facts and letting us make up our own minds. And this is one of those areas where many of those within the legacy media just can't resist the urge to steer us in the right direction. This is what you should feel. This is what you should think. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Yes, uh, I, uh, I want to know your thoughts on how uh, you can respect uh, the, the men who served in the military uh, while acknowledging uh, so much of the flaws that come with that. I know this was back a segment ago with the Ron Paul conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a, I want to show respect for our men in service, but it's, it's challenging for me to, to, uh, to give that respect, knowing that we are less safe every day that they spend overseas torment in another country instead of home. Well, first of all, on an individual level, I know a lot of people who have have been in the armed services or are in the armed services. And and to a person, they entered it with the right mentality, the right heart, you know, of they they want to serve their country. They really believe I'm doing this because this is going to make a difference in the world. Unfortunately, as many of them find out, they become subject to decision makers and policymakers who don't have their interests or our interests or even the world's best interests in mind. They, they are, you know, they're making their decisions based on something that benefits the national security apparatus or the military industrial complex. And, and at the point you become a piece of government property, you don't have a say in the matter. You're just expected to salute and, and do what you're told. 
absolutely. But the, the the challenge I find is to speak truth without with uh, without coming across as someone who is disrespectful. To even speak the truth, saying, "Oh, I don't know why in the world we're we're in that country or that country," and and uh, uh, what point is murder right in another country uh, of of other people uh, well, in the name of our safety here in, in the United States. And there's there's also a tendency, and this is spread throughout American society, to where we have been taught from a very early age to show absolute reverence for anyone or anything in uniform. I mean, we're we're you're yep. supposed to when you see you know someone in uniform, you're supposed to say thank you for your service. It's supposed to be reflexive. Yep. So, bottom line is, some people's feelings are going to get hurt. And I suppose it all depends on, you know, the attitude that uh, that you approach it with. If you approach someone in love and just say, hey, I'm I'm concerned or I, I care about your welfare. I don't want you to be taken advantage of. I don't want you to be lied to by these policymakers. And some people may still get upset. But if you're doing it in love as opposed to baby killer, you know, it's there's a world of difference between those two approaches. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. OK, thank you for your call. I think one of the most effective questions that I have heard um, to, to help get people to contemplate this, and this is true not just for military service, but even I have friends in law enforcement that, uh, that I've asked this question to. And, and it's not to back them into a corner. This isn't one of those gotcha situations. But ask somebody some time to consider. Can you do bad things in the course of your duty and still be a good person? And by bad things, I mean, can you actively infringe on another person's rights just because legally you've got the cover or officially you've got the authorization to do so? But morally, how many bad things can you do and still be a good person? Now, remember, the object here isn't to to bully somebody into saying, see, I told you now you have to quit. But I've talked with enough friends, and this is primarily on the, on the law enforcement side, who have actively questioned, am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? And the, the politicizing of policing is one of the things that has led many of them to start looking for an exit. How can I actually get out of here? And that's, that's troubling to me in this regard. Because many of these guys that I know are, they are, the, they're exactly the kind of person you would want representing your, your community as a peace officer. Because that's how they see themselves, first and foremost, as peace officers, as opposed to, you know, some militarized door kicker out there to enforce whatever the law may be. Look, all I can say is the, the distance between the state and the people is growing. And those of us who recognize that that distance and who point it out, um, you better get used to the fact that it's going to make people angry because we have been taught, most of us from about kindergarten on, to respect the state. And you, you don't question these people out there selflessly serving. I mean, you know, first responders, we, we're, uh, we almost are expected. You must genuflect whenever you say first responder. No. This, which doesn't mean that there aren't good people who sometimes are doing heroic things out there. But the expectation of, well, now we have to have reverence for symbols of the state. We have to have reverence for anybody who's wearing a uniform. That's a very dangerous mindset to get into. Because the state co-opts those symbols and uses them for their for its own purposes. One of the best examples of this, and I think it was Paul Rosenberg wrote about this some, some time ago. Have you noticed 
in our movies and in our TV shows how heroes have all been co-opted by the state. Think about this. How many heroes do you see in the course of an action movie that aren't some kind of government agent, that aren't some kind of a police officer? Yes, maybe he walks, you know, to the sound of his own drum. He's a rogue, you know, he's a rebel. But, but often this is the way that it goes. And again, I'm not denying that there, there can't be, you know, heroic people found in these professions. But I also remember a time when the word hero referred to somebody who did something that was truly above and beyond, something that was extraordinary. But it seems like in some ways we've defined it down to where, hey, anybody who puts on a uniform and shows up for work, that's a hero. And I mean no disrespect to those whose work may involve wearing a uniform. But I think that word hero really should mean heroic. Something that is above average and out of the ordinary and simply working for government in some capacity does not constitute heroism. And even as I say that, I realize, wow, that's wow, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But I think it's a truth that we are losing sight of. And the danger in losing sight of that truth is that it will be exploited and we will be taught, well, you can't criticize, you can't even question. And there are a lot of people who do this. I don't care. You know, video has made it possible for us to see some of the the darker sides of law enforcement. And there's some things we ask police officers to do that uh, I don't think many of us would want to do. Dealing with drunks, people crapping their pants and throwing up in the backseat of your squad car cannot be fun. Fights, domestic violence, children being molested or murdered. That's pretty tough stuff to have to deal with. The carnage of car wrecks, ugly, ugly stuff. But if we automatically ascribe the title of hero to every person who works in the employ of the state, and and we're supposed to regard them as above criticism, and we're supposed to, you know... Find an excuse to believe that anything that they do must be good. I think of the officer down in uh, Dallas who just accidentally shot a woman to death when he was trying to shoot at her dog, which was coming towards him. It's crazy the mental gymnastics that people get wrapped up in to defend the state and the emblems of its power. I'm not saying stop looking for heroes, but I'm just saying... Don't let yourself get manipulated into seeing heroes where maybe the state isn't operating in your interests. Fair enough? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 